on one of the most wonderful seasons of the year, Christmas time. Everything is supposed to be perfect. Christmas time is the one season a year when everything should fall into place and everyone is having the best time of their life. Only that's not always the case. Bad luck and misfortune don't care what season or what day it is. It can strike at any time. As one person shares this story, for Christmas when I was very young, I got a package of Lifesaver mints, you know, the candy with the hole in the middle. I got it in my stocking along with other candy. I loved mints back then, and so I was munching on these mints in my room as I was putting my new stuff away. I got overzealous, sucking on the Lifesaver and swallowed it whole. It lodged completely in my throat, and I was breathing through the tiny hole in it, but barely. I kept trying to swallow, but it was incredibly painful, and I couldn't yell. I remember not being able to get the door open for some reason, and it felt like the Lifesaver candy was twisting in my throat, cutting off my air supply. I couldn't cough or anything. My vision started dimming when suddenly my mother came into the room to see why I hadn't come downstairs. Thinking like a ninja or a black belt in karate, she brought a fist down on my back without asking any stupid questions, and the lifesaver popped out of my throat and out of my mouth. I lay on the ground, gasping for air. Surprisingly, instead of comforting me, she snapped a picture and said she's glad I didn't die and then went downstairs to tell the family that I almost died on a Lifesaver mint candy. Now, I don't have the pictures anymore, but every year my mom gives me a pack of Lifesaver mints and tells me, try not to die this time. Not to sound flippant, but this last phrase kind of sounds like the unsaid theme for this Christmas season. Try not to contract the COVID-19 virus and die. Truly, this Christmas season is unlike any in recent memory. There is a sense of uncertainty and troubles for many who are grappling with economic and financial hardships because of this pandemic. Many don't have much job security and are not sure if they will be furloughed or not, especially if this drags out a few more months until late 2021 or early 2022. And of course, we also have to wait for the distribution of vaccines only when they are ready to be distributed. And even if you are secured job-wise and are on solid financial footing because you have saved up, the fact is you still can't gather with friends and family, or your perhaps mental health has been affected, or your health is susceptible to the virus, which makes you troubled all the time. Oh, how you wish to have this Christmas season be like the Christmas season's past as you look forward to those annual get-togethers with friends and family you only see once a year. But now it can't happen this year, so there is a sense of loss and of sadness. But the circumstances and feels of this COVID Christmas, for lack of a better term to describe this unique historical reality in which we live, you know, it's actually closer to the first Christmas than the usual festive and celebratory Christmases we experience and prefer. So perhaps as we go through this COVID Christmas, there is something we can learn as we experience this together. 
Well, there wasn't a pandemic during the period known as the Pax Romana when Christ was born. It was really a troubled time for the Jewish people under Roman oppression. We will be reminded through our Advent sermon series that the Christmas story is actually quite chaotic, quite jarring, and unsettled for those involved. But through the Scripture's account of Jesus' birth and first few years as a child, we're going to see that joy and peace can be ours, even when things don't go as we so desire and plan for it, or how the circumstances surrounding us are often stressed and troubled, we can still find joy and peace. These next four weeks, we're going to take a look at Matthew's account of the birth narratives of Jesus in chapter 1 and 2 of his gospel. It may not be your typical Christmas messages, but it will be true to the biblical text. And then again, it's not your normal year, this 2020. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 as we begin this sermon series by looking at verses 1 to 17. Matthew chapter 1, as we take a look at verses 1 to 17. How does Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begin his gospel on the life of Christ? Let's take a look. Well, Matthew's going to begin his account of Jesus' life with a genealogy in order to show that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah in the line of David according to the prophets. In the original context, Matthew is writing his gospel primarily to a Jewish audience. And heritage is very important culturally to the Jews. Therefore, to present Jesus as the Messiah, one would think that Matthew would present Jesus with a very strong and pristine genealogy. You know, for example, if you're going to tell a person who you are and who you are related to, are you going to tell them about your uncle who perhaps is in prison or your great-great-grandfather who was caught smuggling illegal things or a relative who is a killer? Of course not. You want to tell them about your relative who has received a Nobel Peace Prize or your father who is a world-class famous academic, or your mother who's a Michelin-starred chef, or your grandfather who's a war hero. But surprisingly, look how Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus. I read from verse 1 and 2. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. So far, so good. We have the big men of faith like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are all the big names you want to be associated with, especially if you're Jewish. Then, of course, we have Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, from whom the promised Messiah would come. And so we read this in verse 3. Judah begot Paris and Zerah by Tamar. Paris begot Hezron and Hezron begat Ram. In the first mention of a mother... Matthew brings up the name Tamar. Now, you may not be familiar with this name, but in one of the most scandalous chapters in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 38, it describes a terrible situation where Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law who had pretended to be a prostitute because Judah had not done right. And it was from this terrible sin that the twins, Perez and Zerah, were born. Paris would be a forefather of Jesus. Now, can you imagine that in this earthly genealogy of Jesus, there is a reminder 
of one of the most unsavory of scandals, deceitful actions on the part of both Judah and Tamar. Why in the world would Matthew mention it or or bring it up? You know, most people would have forgotten about this incident hundreds and thousands of years ago. But to bring it up right now as part of Jesus' earthly heritage conjures up this shocking, sordid act in the memories and the mind of those who read it. And yet here it is in plain sight for all those reading about the life of Jesus in this, the first of the Gospels and the first book of the New Testament. But I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew puts this information here to show right from the start, right at the very beginning, that number one, God extends grace to all those who do not deserve it. God extends grace to all who do not deserve it. Actually, if you look at the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, and pretty much everyone else listed here, you will find that they are not perfect people, even though considered men of faith. They were really broken people, imperfect people with major character flaws. They were stubborn. They were sinners like you and me. And yet God doesn't disqualify Judah from his covenanted promise to Abraham just because he fell into sin with Tamar and really messed up. And all this is because God is gracious. He chooses to extend grace to all who do not deserve it. You know, when a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay for his time, we call that a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, we call that a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, we call that an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, cannot win a prize, and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, this is a picture of God's grace, His unmerited favor. That's what we mean when we talk about the grace of God. So we see here a list of names. And these are part of the Messiah's earthly genealogy. And these are people who we believe should be honored. But in reality, none of them deserve any special mention. They're only on this list because of God's grace. Why is Abraham on this list? Because of God's grace. Why Isaac? Because of God's grace. Why Jacob? Because of God's grace. Why Judah? Because of God's grace. Why you? Why me? Because of God's grace. When people read the book of life, where our names are written, when we place our trust in Jesus as our Savior, they may wonder, why is our name written in the Lamb's book of life? The only reply is because of God's grace, not of our own merit, not because we deserve it for being good, but because of His grace. That's why Paul writes these words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The reason I believe Tamar is put into this genealogy as Matthew begins his book 
is to show that God extends grace to all who do not deserve it. Look with me now at verses 4 and 5. Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse. In this second and third mention of a mother in Jesus' genealogy, Matthew brings up the name of Rahab and Ruth. Now, if you remember, Rahab was a prostitute living in the city of Jericho who hid the two spies who had come to spy on the city. But she had come to acknowledge the one true God, Yahweh. Similarly, you have Ruth who comes to know the one true God, Yahweh, and has a book in the Bible that carries her name in the Old Testament. What we note is that both Rahab and Ruth are not Jewish. Rahab is a Canaanite, while Ruth is also a foreigner, specifically a Moabitess. The people of Moab were not necessarily friends with the people of Israel. For a Jewish person of that time, living in the time of the Romans, being a pure-blooded Jew was a source of great pride, something to be celebrated. But what you have here is a reminder to all, especially those reading this book, especially if you're Jewish, that there is foreign blood in the bloodline of the Messiah, the Savior of the Jewish people. There is a Canaanite and a Moabitess. Now, why does Matthew have to point out Rahab and Ruth? He could have simply skipped over their names with no mention of these two non-Jewish people. But again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew mentions Rahab and Ruth to show that God doesn't care much about your ethnic race. He loves all people. You see, the great truth being conveyed here is a simple yet profound truth, a truth we all need to remember today. Number two, God loves all people equally. God loves all people equally. When God provides salvation through His Son, Jesus, He provides it for all equally, whether Jew or Gentile alike. God doesn't love one group of people more than any other. In His sovereign plan, He had a Moabitess woman named Ruth be a part of Jesus' earthly heritage. He has Rahab, a prostitute who was a Canaanite, be part of Jesus' earthly heritage. God hates racism of all types because He loves all people. I remember the story of a great theologian who was once asked to be a guest lecturer at the University of Chicago Divinity School. At the end of a very captivating closing lecture, the president of the seminary announced that there was time for only one question, and he would ask it on behalf of all those in attendance. He turned to this renowned theologian and asked, of all the theological insights you've ever had, which do you consider to be the greatest of them all? What is your greatest theological insight? It was the perfect question for a man who had written literally tens of thousands of pages of some of the most sophisticated theology ever put into print. The students who had gathered to listen to the lecture held their pencils right up against their writing pads, ready to take down verbatim, word for word, the premier insight of this greatest theologian of their time. This theologian, 
upon being asked this question, closed his tired eyes and then thought for a moment. And then he half smiled, opened his eyes and said to these young seminarians, the greatest theological insight that I've ever learned and come across is this. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. As simple a concept that God's love for each one of us is, it is a profound, life-changing truth. Somehow in our crazy, mixed-up world today, we have complicated it. But God puts it very clearly through the genealogy of His Son, that he loves all people equally. End of story. And that is what Matthew is reminding all those who read his gospel. And in his great love for all people, he desires none of us to perish, as 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us. We deserve death, but he desires in his great love for us to be saved. And so he sends us a Savior in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 6. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Here in verse 6, we are reminded of an illicit love affair between King David and Bathsheba. As if to stress the seriousness of the sin, Bathsheba's name is not even mentioned like that of Tamar or Rahab or Ruth. She is simply referred to here as by her who had been the wife of Uriah. But everyone who is reading Matthew would know that he was referring to Bathsheba. If you remember, David basically had the honorable Uriah killed in the front lines of battle so that he could take Bathsheba, someone else's wife, as his own. It is from this union of David and Bathsheba that you get Solomon, who is the forefather of Jesus. I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew mentions this incident because he wants to remind us another great truth about God, and it is this, number three. God forgives sinners. God forgives sinners. When confronted by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see that David is a repentant, He is remorseful for his sinful actions and he asks God to forgive him. And God does forgive him because God responds to repentant individuals. In fact, if you were to read Psalm chapter 51, this is a Psalm of David written after this incident. You would know this Psalm well. In verse 10 and 11 of Psalm 51, he writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David really desires to be cleansed of his sin. And then in verses 16 and 17, David says, I would have done anything to make it up. But God, you only desire a repentant heart first and foremost. Look at verse 16. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. 
and because David and presumably Bathsheba were repentant of their terrible sinful act of adultery and murder, God forgave them. Now there were consequences to their sin, mind you, including the death of their firstborn son. But God was still gracious and gave them a son, Solomon, who would carry on the family line. But this incident shows that God forgives sinners. Now, some may say that David and Bathsheba do not deserve to be forgiven. What they have done is too horrible to forgive. But the fact that the lineage of the Messiah continues through David and Bathsheba and through Solomon shows that God forgives sinners. You know, if God never forgave, you and I would really have no hope at all. This is exactly what the psalmist expresses in Psalm 130, verses 3 to 4. Psalm 130, verses 3 to 4. If you, Lord, kept the record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. The psalmist expresses the sadness of what happens if the Lord does not forgive. If you keep a record, he proclaims, who can stand? Is there any hope? We need to understand clearly that salvation begins with the desire for God to forgive us. God doesn't have to forgive us. It is well within His right not to forgive us. Everything we do, we deserve. But He chooses to forgive us. If He didn't, we would shoulder our sins forever. We would be weighed down by the load of guilt which could never be removed, that would be a hopeless state. We have all committed sin, and all of us need God's forgiveness. Paul writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, these words, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for eternal life. Let me highlight verse 15, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The story of Jesus cannot be told if this basic truth cannot be understood and accepted. Jesus Christ came as a babe of Bethlehem to take on incarnate form in order to save sinners. You and I would completely miss the emphasis of the Christmas story if we do not accept this truth. The Christmas story is not centrally about the fact that Jesus came as a baby. It's not even about the fact that there were shepherds around when they first heard the news from the angels or the fact that Jesus was born in a manger. It's certainly not about parties and festivities and songs. Christmas is about the great, wonderful, earth-shattering truth that God came to save sinners like David and Bathsheba and He came to save people like you and me because He chose to forgive us. Now that indeed is something to celebrate. You know, the Bible is God's letter to us to tell us about His forgiveness. And yet, sadly, so many people don't ever read it. 
so they don't know about God's desire to forgive sinners. I'm reminded of a story of an attorney who, after meditating on several passages of Scripture, decided to cancel the debt of all his clients that had owed him money for more than six months. He drafted a letter explaining his decision and its biblical basis, and he sent out 17 debt-canceling letters via certified mail. One by one, the letters were returned by the postal service, unsigned and undelivered. Perhaps a couple people may have moved away, although not very likely. Sixteen of the 17 letters came back to him because the clients refused to sign for the letter and open the envelopes, fearing that the attorney was suing them for their debt. How profound when you think about it. We owe a debt for our sin, and God is willing to cancel it. And He's written an entire book called the Bible about His desire to cancel our debt. But too many people will never open up God's love letter for us that explains how He will forgive our debt. That's why people will only read the Bible. They will find out this simple yet profound truth, God forgives sinners. It is this loving truth that Matthew doesn't want his readers to miss out on the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. Look with me now at verses 7 to 15 of Matthew chapter 1. Solomon begat Rehoboam. Rehoboam begat Abijah. And Abijah begat Asa. Asa begat Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat begat Joram. And Joram begat Uzziah. Uzziah begat Jotham. And Jotham begat Ahaz. And Ahaz begat Hezekiah. And Hezekiah begat Manasseh. Manasseh begat Ammon. And Ammon begat Josiah. Josiah begat Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought in Babylon, Jeconiah begat Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begat Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Eliakim. And Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Zadok. And Zadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliud. And Eliud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob. Now you would say, why in the world did I just read through a bunch of names? You see, in verses 7 to 15, we are reminded of the terrible and wicked kings of Judah, like Manasseh and Ammon. And then you have also godly kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, and even the great post-exilic spiritual leader named Zerubbabel. In the listing of godly men in between very evil leaders, it is as if to say that God can save and redeem even in the most broken of circumstances and the most broken of situations. And it is this foretruth, I believe, Matthew is trying to convey as he records the earthly genealogy of Jesus. Even in the most desperate of situation, with evil kings in control, God can redeem, God can save, and God can fix the nation by establishing good leaders to come after these evil rulers. It's a good reminder to us that whatever situation we may be in, however messed up we are, 
However unsalvageable the circumstances we believe, God is able to fix. God is able to redeem. God is able to restore. You see, here's the great truth, number four. God fixes the most broken of conditions. God fixes the most broken of conditions. Now you may be asking the question, can God forgive a sinner like me, my life so messed up? Pastor, you won't believe and imagine the things that I have done. And my answer to you would be, absolutely. God fixes the most broken of people in the most broken of situations and conditions. You know, God could have given up on the people of Israel a long time ago when they had terrible evil kings. But then you have someone like King Hezekiah who comes after an evil father. And then you have King Josiah who follows an evil grandfather and an evil father. And now in the most broken of conditions during the time of Matthew, and even today with the condition of our world, dark and evil as it is, with the sinfulness of man seemingly to run rampant, we see that God can fix this broken condition. You see, the biggest problem of life is the sin problem. We can't save ourselves. We have no hope of going to heaven. But our hope lies in the fact that God can fix this most impossible and broken of conditions. And He will do so through His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, as many people gather for the season, the Christmas season, everyone's striving for that magical moment. I think they've watched too many Christmas movies or films, and they're thinking about wanting the perfect family gathering. We don't want anything or anyone to ruin our Christmas time and Christmas gatherings. And anyone who is broken or any issues that will break into our perfect narrative of a Christmas story we do not allow to be a part of our lives because we don't want to allow it into our Christmas memories. But, you know, if you were to gather all of Jesus' relatives, it would certainly be a group of broken people. You see, at the end of the day, Christmas is about broken things being fixed, being restored, being made new. And when we acknowledge that God fixes the most broken of circumstances, the most broken of people, the most broken of conditions, and first and foremost, that being our sin problem, then joy would definitely fill our hearts and should fill our hearts. And that's why in the genealogy of the Messiah, I believe Matthew includes all of these names, both good and bad. And then we get to verses 16 to 17. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. In the fifth mention of a mother in the genealogy of Jesus, you have his earthly mother, Mary. From her comes Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, I've taught you this before. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning anointed one, the chosen one. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. 
Therefore, from this genealogy to open the book of Matthew and to begin the New Testament, we have the identification of the Savior and His name is Jesus. The truth being expressed here in verses 16 and 17 is that God saves us through His Son, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Number five, God saves us through His Son, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. You know, the Anointed One, the Messiah, has come in the person of Jesus to make right the wrongs of the evil world, just like his forefathers, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, Zerubbabel. But this time, it would be the ultimate fix, the perfect fix to the problem of sin and evil in this world. And to restore each of our lives to those who live on this earth because He would take on the sins of the world upon Himself. This is the truth that if you meditate on it, will transform your life. That God saved us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah. I remember a story told that many years ago, before the sensitive and political correct society in which we live today, there was a boy who was continually in trouble. He was forever breaking the rules and always getting into trouble at school. His father could not understand why. The father provided for his son in every way with a good home. He spent time with his son going fishing and going to ball games. And he showered his son with unconditional love. But the father just couldn't figure out why the boy wouldn't mind the rules. Why he was always getting to trouble. He had been raised in the church and had even been in Sunday school for five years. His father was consistently reading the Bible to him. And his father never provoked him to anger. His son's behavior was a mystery to him. One day when his son was upstairs playing around with his baseball, which he had been told repeatedly not to do, he ended up breaking one of the bedroom windows. The boy was 10 years old and certainly knew better because his father had told him time and again not to play ball in the house. The father headed upstairs and took off his belt. The boy knew what was coming, so he voluntarily bent over and kneeled next to his bed. But the father said, Son, here, take this belt, which the son did. Then his father took off his shirt and knelt down on the bed and said, Son, I want you to give me seven lashes with this belt across my back. His son started to cry and said he couldn't do it. The father kept insisting until the son finally relented and started hitting his father across the back with the belt, but it wasn't hard enough. And the father said, harder, son, harder. And the boy finally lashed the belt across his father's back seven times with greater force. The father asked him, son, do you know why I had you do this? The son said, no. The father said, when Jesus went to the cross for us, he took the worst punishment that had ever been inflicted upon any man. He was pummeled. He was beaten. His beard was probably plucked out. And he was punished like no one had ever been punished. Who do you really think did this to Jesus? The boy, still whimpering, hesitated and finally said, 
he thought it was the Jews or the Romans. But the boy's father said, no. It was God the Father who punished Jesus for everything that we have ever done wrong or will ever do wrong in the future. He took the punishment that He didn't deserve to save those who didn't deserve saving. This is how much the Father and Jesus loved us. It was God's love most gloriously displayed for us who deserved, actually, His wrath. The boy was shaken deeply by this lesson. And from that day forward, the boy never seemed to get into the same amount of trouble again. Not perfect, but changed. Maybe it was because he wasn't sure how his father would react again. The boy didn't ever want to use the belt on his dad again, although the father never said anything more about it. Whatever it was, the message of God's love displayed on the cross by Christ forever changed this young man, and it has forever, I hope, changed us as well. The boy was not perfect after that by no means, but neither are we after we are saved. But that doesn't take away what was accomplished on the cross. My friends, this is God's gift to us. This is the Christmas story. This is the weight of the title when the Bible says He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And so when you say His name is Jesus Christ, He is Jesus, the Savior, who took on the sins of the world, not that He deserved it, but that which we deserve in order to save us. So why did Matthew need to air out the dirty laundry of Jesus' earthly family heritage in this genealogy to begin his book. He could have easily skipped over these people who are mentioned here to sanitize the genealogy of Jesus. Most of us common readers would never have known. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is, I believe, to remind us through Jewish history and Jesus' own family tree of five great truths for why Jesus had to come to earth to be born as a babe of Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, God Himself, came down to earth to show that God extends grace to all who do not deserve it. To show that God loves all people equally. To show that God forgives sinners. To show that God fixes the most broken of conditions to show that God saves us through His Son, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. In light of these great truths, how can it not give you joy and peace in these uncertain and troubled times to know there is a God who has extended grace to you, who loves you, who forgives you, who fixes the broken problems of our lives, and who saves us? This was the truth that the Jewish people needed to hear in the time of the Roman occupation and under their oppression. And this is the truth we need to hear and hear again and to embrace living under the oppression of the world today in order to be able to find joy and peace. My friends, this is the real Christmas story. And the genealogy of Jesus, as noted by Matthew, is in a nutshell 
the very essence of the Christmas story, telling us about a God who extends His grace to us, a God who loves us unconditionally, a God who forgives us, a God who fixes the broken problems of our lives, and the God who saves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this genealogy. Thank you that in its imperfection, your love and your grace and your forgiveness and your desire to save mankind is seen so clearly. Father, as we enter what we call the Advent season, the remembering of you coming to earth in order to save us, may this not simply be a story that is something that we've heard before, but may it be a truth that truly transforms the way we live. We who are sinners have been saved by the Savior who is Emmanuel, God with us, coming to earth to be born to die for us. Thank you, Lord, for these wonderful truths. May we live in response to what we have heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.